A reading from the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading from Matthew. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let's just pray for a moment before I begin. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come by your Spirit, help me to speak, and give us all ears to hear your voice. For your glory. Amen. Well, we're quite excited at home at the moment because it's not just that Christmas is coming, but we're expecting our daughter Kylie to come back from South Africa in about two and a half, three weeks' time. 
um, in time for Christmas, and she left last December. So she hasn't been in this country for a year. We did see her in May when we travelled to South Africa, but we're really excited about the fact that she's coming back, um, at least for a short stay. And, uh, and so we're thinking about making preparations for that. I'm sure Kirsty's getting her room ready, um, preparing things, thinking about what we might do with her when she's here. So we're, we're preparing for the fact that she's coming back. And of course, today is the first Sunday of Advent when we particularly think of the return of Jesus Christ promised in Scripture. And so here's a question. What would you do if you were told and you really believed that Jesus was coming back next Sunday? What would your week look like for the next six or seven days? I wonder what you'd do. One person, when they were asked this, said, well, I'd hoover my house. And actually, that's not so, that, that, that is quite a good thing to think of if you, if you think about it, because if the Queen came to St. Matthew's for a visit, what would we do? We'd roll out the red carpet, and I can guarantee you somebody would be out there with a hoover, hoovering it just before she arrived. So that's not a bad thing to do, is it? Um, why not hoover the carpets if the King of Kings is coming back? In the vicarage at the moment, we'd have to be particularly careful because we just took delivery, as it were, of a new dog, and it's a long-haired retriever, and so we'd have to hoover the carpets at the very last minute, otherwise there'd be hairs all over it. But today is Advent Sunday, the start of this four-week period before Christmas, as we think about the return of Jesus. It's not just about opening um, Advent calendars and counting down the time until we celebrate Jesus' first coming at Christmas, it's about recognising the important Christian belief that Jesus has promised to come again. But there's a bit of a problem with this. Firstly, the message that Jesus will one day return is often lost in the overwhelming rush and busyness and materialism of of the Christmas season. Secondly, in the lives of perhaps many Christians and churches... The return of Jesus Christ is perhaps omitted or sidelined when it should play an important part in our whole Christian understanding and attitude to life, just as it did in the New Testament church that we read about um, in in the Bible. In fact, it was one of the main factors, the return of Christ, that energized that early church. And if we could understand it and take it to heart ourselves, perhaps it could energise our Christian lives and the church today in a new way. The good news is the scriptures have the answers. They tell us how we should think about Christ's return and also how we can live well in the knowledge that he will return. So let's look at the text and think about three questions. What is this second coming of Christ? Why is it important? And thirdly, how might a right belief in his return change our lives for the better. So firstly, what is it? Let's turn to our gospel reading, Matthew 24 and verse 36. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples about a time in the future which he calls here the coming of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus time and time again used about himself. So this is a reference to a future time when Jesus will return. Secondly, he uses the phrase, as it was in the time of Noah. So it will be at the coming of of, of the Son of Man. This is very important because it refers to the, uh, the time of Noah, referring to the flood in Genesis, and it was a time of God's judgment on the world. John records Jesus in chapter 5 saying that God had given him authority to judge because he's the son of man. And verse 38 and verse 39 make it clear that it will be a complete surprise. No one will know when it's going to happen until it happens. And when it does, verse 40 and verse 41 make it clear that some will be judged worthy of God's kingdom and some will not. So this time when Jesus will return in the future will be a sudden, unannounced return of Jesus and a time of judgment for all people. What's more, other scriptures make it clear that Jesus is not going to appear as he did before, as a carpenter's son in a lowly stable, virtually unknown, to suffer and die, but that he will come in power everywhere unmistakably and unopposed. Mark 13, 26 says he will come in clouds with great power and glory. Our first hymn that we sang today um, describes his return as lo he comes with clouds descending, thousand thousand saints attending, robed in glorious majesty, claiming the kingdom for his own. Stephen Travis, um, the New Testament lecturer in his book End of Story says that This imagery shows that he will come in triumph and with the full authority of God behind him. Paul the Apostle says in his letter to the church in Philippi that um, at Jesus' coming that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. The bottom line is, when Jesus returns, however he does and whenever he does, we will all know about it. But if that's what it is, why is it important? Why will Jesus return? Don't we all just live and then uh, when we die go to heaven? I mean, I'd be happy with that. I'd settle for that, wouldn't you? After all, that's the impression we often give when we talk of someone dying and going to heaven. But the Bible tells us that the story of God's love for the world is incomplete without the time when God, in Jesus, will return to restore the whole of creation. And here's the story, if you like, in short. Firstly, God created a beautiful world for us in which we could live in harmony with him. Then human beings used the freedom that God gave them to choose to disobey him and go their own way. And the world fell into sin, as the Bible calls it. Through a chosen people, starting with Abraham and the the patriarchs, God began the process of redeeming the now fallen world through the nation of Israel, 
But this culminated with the Israelites utterly failing to keep God's laws that he gave them through Moses. And over time, even though some faithful people like King David and and other prophets tried to steer them back on course, it was to no avail. But in his love, God didn't leave us in that mess. He decided to bring in his kingdom and his rule and reign through his son, Jesus, who came to earth on that first Christmas, spent three years teaching and demonstrating what God's kingdom should look like, then went to the cross, sacrificed his life in order that our sins could be forgiven and we could be set free. And he rose to new life as proof if you like, that his victory over evil and death was effective. And then, after returning to his Father in heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to be his universal presence on earth. And empowered by the Spirit, the church was birthed and it blossomed and grew and flourished to cover the whole of the earth. More than two billion people today. But the story of God's dealings with the world doesn't just have a beginning and and a middle bit. It has an end. As theologian Emil Brunner put it, faith in Jesus without the expectation of his final coming is a check that is never cashed, a promise that is not made in earnest. A faith in Christ without his final coming is like a flight of stairs that leads nowhere but ends in a void. And so the second coming of Christ is vital because it completes God's story of his dealings with the world. And secondly, it means judgment on all people. 1 Corinthians 4 says that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. As Stephen Travis says, we like to think we're independent able to make choices without worrying about the consequences. For comfortable Westerners like us, he says, the idea of a God of justice has become alien to our patterns of thought. But the message of God's justice warns us that one day our overinflated ideas of ourselves will burst like soap bubbles and we shall be seen as we truly are. But if you're the victim of injustice, if the whole system is stacked against you, you long for justice and you long to know that the unjust will not get away with their injustice forever. And when Jesus returns, God's justice will prevail. And those who need to pay will pay for their wrongdoings. And thirdly and vitally, God's dealings with his world are not complete until the whole of creation is renewed. The Bible doesn't so much speak of the end of the world as of a new heaven and a new earth, a restored creation. It doesn't speak of us abandoning the earth and jetting up to heaven so much as it speaks of God transforming the whole created environment. Toward the end of Revelation, we're told, Now the dwelling of God is with human beings and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will live with them. Then 
the story will be complete. And if that is the story, how might a right belief in Jesus' return change our lives for the better? Well, before we can answer that, we perhaps have to think of one more question. Because it's a question people always ask themselves when they're thinking about this subject. And that is, when will he return? Because if we knew it was next Sunday, or next month, or whatever, we might act differently for if we knew it was going to be another 2,000 years. And hundreds of people have written books on this subject. Different sects like Jehovah's Witnesses have particular ideas on it, as do different Christian theological positions. So we could discuss it all day. But I thought you'd prefer that I just give you the answer. It's in verse 36 of our reading. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. And again, in Acts chapter 1, when his disciples asked Jesus the same question, he says quite clearly and categorically, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Matter closed. We don't know, and it's clear that God did not intend us to know. But it does mean that he could return next Sunday, or he could return in another month or year or 2,000 years. In 2 Peter, the Bible tells us that the reason that he's not yet returned is because of his great love for the world. Peter writes, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so the right way to live is in anticipation of Jesus' return at any time. And so it really is worth asking the question, what would I do if I thought Jesus was coming back next Sunday, or next month, or next year? Because it forces us to think about what is really important in our lives. I was talking to one person about this yesterday at the coffee shop lunch stop, and um, they said that one person on this subject had challenged them to talk to each person they met as if it was the last time they would ever have the chance to speak to them. Because then we would really speak about the things that mattered most. It's a great thought. I suspect that there are one or two people caught up in the helicopter crash in Glasgow who might have wished for the chance to say some really important things to friends or family that they, had they known what would happen that day. But living for Jesus' return isn't just about avoiding regrets. It's also about anticipating or improvising the kingdom of God in the here and now. In the great story that we've thought about today, we live in the age of the church, the age of the Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be kingdom people in the here and now. And in the last verse of our gospel passage, it tells us to be ready for Jesus' return. That's why there is an urgency to the church's mission. That's why we are mission action planning at St. Matthew's. And by the way, if you weren't here a couple of Sundays ago when we launched mission action planning, 
There are more of these booklets out on the welcome table, so do please take one on your way out if you don't have one yet, because we would love to get your input to the church's priorities for the next three to five years. That's why we're doing it. We don't want to be like the church in Laodicea in our first reading today, accused by Jesus of being neither hot nor cold, but just lukewarm. Rich in money and materials, but complacent in their attitude and found seriously wanting as a result. I don't know about you, but with the possibility that Jesus might return in my lifetime, I want to try and make the most of the rest of my life living in expectation of that amazing, awesome and telling day when Jesus will return. I would love to be able to say on that day, with real feeling, I am so glad that you have returned. Amen.